Okay, everyone. I have some exciting news about an upcoming Sound of Ages event that will be happening shortly. And we'll talk a little bit about the composer. Is he Dutch or is he English? Can't tell. Peter Phillips. This is Early Music Monday. So I don't claim to be an early music expert. and We have a weird perception of what that word means nowadays, I think. And that's a whole other podcast episode, I'm pretty sure. Probably a whole series. Anyway, I am not an early music expert. I am an early music fan, which is short for fanatic, which means I think a lot about it and I study a lot about it. And I read a lot about it, and I perform a lot about it, and I conduct a lot about it. I just, I'm all, I'm all about it. That being So that being said, I did some studying on a cool composer named Peter Phillips. I know what you're thinking. The first thought that hits anybody when they hear the name Peter Phillips is the world-famous conductor of the Talus Scholars. Peter Phillips. I could see how that could be confusing, especially for people who are choral enthusiasts, but not necessarily living in the choral world all the time. So the quick test is to see if the Peter Phillips that you're reading about is alive. That's the case. You're talking about Peter Phillips, conductor of the Talus Scholars. If he's dead and there's only one L in his last name, talking about composer Peter Phillips. But also British. So again, it's kind of like that John Taverner and John Taverner, which we will talk about at some point as well. Just craziness. Lots of, it's kind of like the Tudor dynasty in general of. How many Henrys are there? And how many Edwards? Marys, Elizabeth. It's just craziness. Before we get into Peter Phillips, though, we're going to talk about something cool that Sound of Ages is piloting this week on Thursday. Now, it's not going to be, you're not going to be able to see uh, video clips of it or anything. We'll post some pictures, but. There will be our first ever Sound of Ages Approach Choir Clinic with Provo High School. I am super psyched about this because I personally am of the belief that, well, okay, 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 okay. Let me, I'm getting ahead of myself and I'm skipping details. So the Sound of Ages Approach Clinic is a educational workshop that Sound of Ages hasn't obviously started yet. We are piloting it, but where we go in to high school or a community choir or a collegiate group and we do a clinic with them and we use Renaissance music to improve performance. I am personally of the opinion 
and I have some self-gathered empirical data to back it up that singing and learning how to perform early music really well builds a wider variety mm, not wider variety but builds choral singing skills the best that's a bold statement i know but hear me out this is why i believe that number one in order to really bring that music to life you have to understand how it was put together so in order to do that you you have to touch on a little bit and you don't have to go super in depth but a little bit of music history and a little bit of kind of quasi music theory counterpoint principles in order to really bring it to life if you just give students a piece of polyphonic music and say hey we're going to sing this and they've never heard or seen it before it's going to be really weird for a lot of them a lot of them who are coming from the world of pop music or musical theater into singing choir now all of a sudden nothing's happening at the same time and it just doesn't it won't make any sense so you have to do some musical context uh, and some musical construction music theory in order to bring it to life the next thing to bring it to life and out of the museum a little bit is that it has to be sung with good voice technique a lot of the times the ranges of renaissance music at the range is really tricky because of the the voice forces they had at the time at whatever place they were writing so the the vocal ranges are much more unique i guess and not they don't fit as clearly into a box and so in order to do that you have to have better command of your technique so it teaches technique in it number three in order to bring it to life you have to learn how to that um it barbershop teaches this really well i will say maybe better maybe slightly better because it's like mostly uh homophonic the concept of just intonation singing without a keyboard instrument to sing perfectly in tune um, that just intonation and listening really comes through singing Renaissance music. Again, barbershop maybe, but the trouble with barbershop is that it doesn't teach these other concepts quite as well either. So it's kind of, and that's also kind of a bold statement. So if you were working on just just intonation, wow, that's a weird sentence. If you're well, if you're working only on just intonation, then yeah, I'd say maybe teach barbershop. But if you wanted to teach other things at the same time, simultaneously, I would go with early music. Because you have to, you, you 
in order to really make again this is all you can sing early music blah but that's kind of the connotation that early music has anyway is that it's kind of blah so if you're going to really make it come out of the museum come to life singing it with just intonation in kind of a just tuning system is the only way to do it. Now that for, we could go into that. I'm going to have a whole episode on that later, but basically what that means is for those of you who don't know what that means, many of you I'm sure do, but again, if you don't, just intonation is just a pure tuning pure interval, pure ratio of sound waves. And keyboard instruments are slightly impure, which makes it to where you can play in all the keys at once, like you can change keys all the time and it still sounds in tune-ish because it's all slightly out of tune, so it's all equal balanced. But that's not the way it would have been sung per se, Unless it was accompanied by an organ, but even still, there's some debate on which churches had organ doubling the voices and which ones didn't, and if those organs were tuned, there's all kinds of things. So, regardless, if we're, but we can still teach just intonation and get that music to really lock in, and it literally jumps off the page. When it tunes like that, it pops, and it's boppity. It's boppity. So that's the third thing. Did I say third thing? Fourth thing? The fourth thing is that it really gets, and this is probably the kicker for me, the number one most important skill is that it teaches the singer to have individual singer responsibility. Even if you're singing it with more than one voice per part, they have to sing as an ensemble. The conductor basically is a metronome, a glorified metronome sometimes with early music. And the responsibility for interpretive performance, well, I guess I guess you could break it down like this. It, if a choir is singing something and we want to, and the choir wants to, you know, crescendo or decrescendo or have some kind of musical expression happen, usually the conductor will show it and the choir will do it. Sounds simple, but in an ideal world, singers would actually follow the conductor. It's a really weird concept. We should all try it sometime. But I'd say the ratio of like singer responsibility to conductor responsibility in a complex contemporary piece is perhaps, whether we intend it to be or not, is probably like 70% conductor, 30% choir, 60, 40, 80, 20, depending on the conductor and their philosophy. Now, if you're, but when you're doing renaissance music that shifts because everyone has because of the polyphonic nature everyone's doing something different at the same time that responsibility has to shift the conductor can't show a crescendo and a decrescendo at the same time in different parts i mean i guess you could you would 
literally look like a maniac. I remember, side story, I was sitting in, I can't even remember where I was, but I was sitting in a performance and I was, I was a music student. Like I was in college. So I, I was, I, I was, uh, um, relatively artistically cultured (laughs) kind of, but we were at this one performance of the symphony and the conductor was way into it, way into it, which is, I get way into it. I'm not knocking that, but the way he was doing it was really kind of, kind of, uh, oh, this is going to sound so mean, unathletic looking. And I'm an athletic person, so it's like athletic coordinated movements are, fun to watch and unathletic not coordinated movements are harder to watch and so i was just and i was like man this guy is i mean i wasn't judging it's like man this guy is awesome he is way into it but then i had a friend who was in the audience who said cam just like picture that the conductor is wrestling this giant bear (laughs) and i like it ruined the whole performance because i just pictured him wrestling this giant bear and it looked it was perfect (laughs) it was dying oh it took me all i i was biting my tongue so hard trying not to laugh because i am and i'm still laughing because i am 12 and immature and it's hilarious so that's not to say that the conductor doesn't can't couldn't learn to really intensely show a crescendo and a decrescendo simultaneously, but I don't think that that is the conductor's job. I really don't think so. We've had an episode on conductor responsibilities before. I'd love to hear more of your thoughts about conductor roles and responsibilities, but I really don't think it's to show everything because it's not, mm, again, it's not the conductor's performance. The choir is performing. The conductor is leading that performance to a unified place. So if you think about musical expression and ensemble singing, the sh- the, there's a big shift that happens from 70, 30, 60, 40, 80, 20, whatever, of conductor to choir. But then that shifts to 60% choir, 30% or 20% conductor. I Again, me with math, 60-30. 60-40, 70-30, But it tips the other way. The singers have that responsibility to really interpret that. So that builds confidence. If you have a choir that's not the most confident, it might be like pulling teeth at first. And I have done this with junior high and high school students who are less than confident, and it is. It is like pulling molars, but by the end of that time, the amount of confidence that those singers sing with is way higher than any of the other pieces, like the Renaissance piece, the early music piece, the polyphonic piece, whatever, builds confidence way more than any of the other pieces of music that they happen to be singing, at the, like learning at the same time. And... Because it builds singer independence, because you have to be. 
And so that helps them learn how to listen louder, listen louder than they sing. It's a phrase a lot of conductors use, listen louder than you sing. Um, and really sing together instead of singing at the same time. So, uh, and there's more. But those are the main things that it teaches to review. Number one, it teaches you have to have some, if you sing it well, if you're going to perform it well and bring it to life and really invest in it, early music, you have to have historical context. It brings it to life, brings the history to now. It builds really good um, reading skills, which I didn't even list, because you have to read. There's lots of ear training that happens naturally that is slightly out of our normal, what we would think of major, minor, common practice theory. They have to learn how to hear those modes. It helps them hear interval better, so it helps their ear training. It helps them sing as an ensemble. It helps them to sing with really good technique because they have to. They have to sing with good technique. It helps them listen because of intonation. So that is why. And the reason why that's true is because I've seen it in real life. Not just with the students that I teach, but with myself as a singer. I always felt like I was way more on my A-game when singing uh, an early music piece at my with my when I was in an e choir than singing contemporary music and I don't I don't know why it's weird there's just this level there's this heightened level of skill I guess that you bring to the table if you're going to perform it well so eventually I will do research with a wide variety of schools and choirs and back it up with all kinds of empirical data because academics like that sort of thing, including myself. But starting that research with the Sound of Ages approach, and we're really excited about it. We're doing it this Thursday with Provo High School as our pilot. I'm really excited to work with those students. We've had their conductor, Kenny Weiser, on the show. He's a good friend of mine. He builds really good sound and has a really good program. It's amazing. And so we do that through some educational background, some his- or historical background, sorry. We'll do, we do some historical context lecture-y type things that are, I mean, I try to make it more like stand-up comedy than a lecture. I mean, you've listened to the podcast, you know that I'm not funny, but I try to be, and sometimes teenagers think I'm funny, so that's that works, I guess. Um, we do that through certain activities that I've come up with that build the idea of ensemble singing and ensemble responsibility and how to share that responsibility. I won't give those away here, but you'll hopefully... If you have Sound of Ages come, for those of you who are conductors, you will see these activities. Um, And we do that through voice technique workshops with Sound of Ages singers. 
you know, like we get some one-on-one vocal instruction with the singers and how to sing with a full tone that's clean. So we don't have wablato going on, but we don't have the concept of straight tone either. We get to sing full, our voice, maybe a slight shimmer, but it all locks because it's clean and it's not out of control. And then we, we learn how to put those things together, you know, through full tone, full singing, and then through ear training and ensemble responsibility, ensemble, individual responsibility for the ensemble sound. Completely independent of a conductor and some historical context. So we are really excited to bring this to life, to gather some data, and to, to prove once and for all that early music is the best of all musics. It's like Roy when he goes to see Pam's art in the office. Your art is the prettiest art of all the art. Renaissance music is the prettiest music of all the music. Speaking of prettiness of all the music, there's a composer. We're going to shift gears now to a kind of an old school version of composer profile, which is, drum roll please. I don't know why we're drum rolling because I said it at the beginning of the show. Peter Phillips. Congratulations, everyone. Peter Phillips. Now, Peter Phillips is my favorite Belgian composer. Wait, but that name doesn't sound very Belgian. Well, that's because he was English. Well, how come he doesn't show up on most lists of British composers? Strange, in the choral repertoire book by Dennis Schrock, it's like a choral composer's encyclopedia, is the greatest resource. I freaking love that book. He's listed under, like, France in terms of what uh, Dennis Schrock organizes the, it's like the Renaissance era, then he organizes it by region or country. And Peter Phillips is not in the English section. I'm pretty sure he's in the French section, just like the Flemish area, Franco-Flemish, France, Belgium, you know. It was all different back then. I didn't look exactly where the where the territorial lines were drawn, but anyway. Now, Peter Phillips is considered that because he was a Catholic, staunch Catholic. He was trained at St. Paul's, St. Paul's Cathedral, and then after his voice broke, um, he stayed living with his mentor, and then after a couple years, he fled to... Antwerp in uh, in Belgium because oh, modern day Belgium because uh, of his Catholicism they were burning Catholics left and right and he was devout so he had to get out of there this was fairly common 
at the time. Catholics were fleeing England left and right to get out of the frying pan, so to speak. So the interesting thing is, is though, after he gets to Antwerp, after a while, um, he was... So he was accused of being complicit in the assassination attempt of Queen Elizabeth at the time. And so he was imprisoned in Hague. I mean, I don't think that's the right pronunciation. I think it's something like Hague or something. Anyway. Um, and yeah, wow. The plot thickens. He's trying to get away from persecution, and then he gets put in prison. That is like literally jumping out of the firing frying pan and into the fire. But he was able to convince his captors that he was innocent by translating and of his loyalty by translating his own accusations into Dutch, which showed him loyal to you guys. So after that, he was acquitted, and all was fine and dandy. Now, the interesting thing, so that's crazy, by the way, because, again, we think about getting imprisoned for your religious beliefs. It always sounds like some crazy foreign thing, but it still happens all the time across, like, there are parts of the world where that would still be a real thing. Which is bonkers. But he eventually he became like he was canonized, not in terms of like he became a saint, but he was became a priest and of the church and he composed exclusively after a while he changed and composed exclusively sacred music. Um, Canciones Sacre is a collection of his sacred pieces. Now, the reason why... So, the reason why Peter Phillips was selected for today's episode is because as part of the Sound of Ages approach, we, we approach the conductor and kind of ask the conductor kind of what they're looking for, what are some things you're wanting to focus on, what are your pain points within your organization or your choir? And then we go back and, okay, this is how Renaissance music can fix that. And one of the things that Kenny expressed is that he's really, he's trying this year to do some five-part music because the women are a little bit more technically advanced than the men are at the high school age. It's just sad, you know? It's just, uh, I always tell the the guys in my choir, look, the girls are going to learn this faster. I'm sorry. It has nothing to do with how good you are or how good they are. It has to do with they are ahead of you. It's like you're running a race and they're ahead of you. I'm sorry. They just develop faster. That's just how it works. Their voice change is not nearly as extreme or violent the imagery where it's shifting three octaves four octaves whatever that's not to say that female singers don't have their challenges but but man it's like and i'm sure those of you who are teaching high school choir can relate of 
oftentimes how much faster your female singers get stuff down than your male singers. So because of that, he didn't want his girls to have to like hold back while the he's trying to like pull sound from the guys. So he wisely wanted to split the women into three equal parts um, in terms of numbers and then keep the men, you know, tenor and bass. So five-part music, S-S-A-T-B or S-A-A-T-B is really good for that sort of ensemble. It's oftentimes better than four-part music because of the balance that it achieves um, due to those factors. So that's the cool part is Peter Phil. If, if you're looking for music that's like that, five parts, SSATB, and it's pretty clean. The, the two soprano parts are, off, are often like the same part kind of in canon or the same range just at different times. But you can split the sopranos and have a couple of your really solid altos who may be lazy sopranos, quote unquote, sing that middle part and do really well with it because it's basically a soprano part. And you could, and or if the tenor part gets kind of high, you could get a couple of alto twos if you have some really, really awesome alto twos then they could hop down and sing tenor. So you, you can divide it up really well to where you have a really good balance. And Peter Phillips has a ton of that music. A ton. So, I mean, it's a quick search. I'm not doing anything fancy that you couldn't do right now. But if I look Peter Phillips up on the interwebs, CPDL, and you go down to the bottom of the page, there's a whole book, Canciones Sacre Quinis Vocibus, Five Voices. And there's there's 69 of them. I mean, they're not all on CPDL for, for free, but at least, I mean, there's at least 50 of them or so that are. Yeah, there, there's 68. Wow, okay, that's a lot. There's 68 that are on CPDL. And some of them are in different keys, so you can have alto, alto, tenor, tenor, bass. If you have a large uh, men's chorus with some unchanged voices that can sing those alto parts, you, there's all kinds of great stuff. 68 pieces of five parts. It's incredible. Another great composer to look up is Jan Pitetsun Svelink. I love saying his name like Pitetsun. I don't know why it seems like you should say it like that. Svelink, because he also has a crap ton of five-part music. It's awesome. So, <clears throat> and we'll do a, a composer profile breakdown of Svelink another day, because Svelink is... He rocks, for lack of a better word. He just slays. So that's Peter Phillips. That's Peter Phillips' music. His music is outstanding. He also has really good eight-part stuff that is 
antiphonal in nature, double choir stuff. So if you have the forces to do double choir things, he's got great stuff for that too. He's got an entire other collection of Canzoni Sacre, but Sacre, Sacre, but for eight voices. So be sure to check that out as well. Now, to end the episode, I would like to play a clip of, well, not a clip, I'd like to play for you BYU singer's performance of Ece Vicit Leo, which translates to Behold the Lion. It's very exciting. Double choir, rhythmic, exciting text. It's very cool. So here is BYU singers conducted by Dr. Andrew Crane performing Peter Phillips' Ece Vicit Leo. Renaissance tunes just blasting you right in the fizz ace. First thing in the morning. Ah, it's so awesome. Well, I guess if you're listening in the morning. So good. Interesting tidbit. Yours truly, K. 
Cameron Cavanaugh was singing in that recording. That was fun. Took me back, trip down memory lane to my time with BYU Singers, Andrew Crane conducting. You can find BYU Singers on YouTube. You can search for their website. They have a bunch of CDs that are amazing. They always have an amazing sound. We'll post a link to some of those things in the show notes. So be sure to go and look up BYU Singers because they are awesome. And there you have it. The Sound of Ages Approach launches officially Thursday, August 12th, 2021. If you're interested in booking Sound of Ages for a Sound of Ages Approach clinic, just reach out on our website or soundofagesquire at gmail.com. We're happy to come and help your group, your singers, bring early music to life out of the museum. Be sure to check out the music of Peter Phillips because it is great. Look up BYU Singers if you're wanting to know more about them or hear more of their recordings. If you can, give us a rating and a a five-star review, obviously. Uh, It really helps us out, and we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday.